Genesis 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. We are starting, or rather last week, we started a new sermon series uh, called Genesis. Uh, We call it Genesis because we're going through the book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis comes from the Latin word for origins. Uh, It's the first book of the Bible, and it tells the original origin story about this world that we call home, how it came to be, what went wrong, where it's headed, how God helps us make sense of it all, of life and death and where we find a hope and meaning in the middle of it all. If we really want to understand, I think, the story of the whole Bible, then we, we need to understand the book of Genesis. One of our values here that you'll hear us talk about is what we call biblical literacy, which basically means we want you to learn how to read the Bible for yourself, to know how to understand it, know how to apply it to your everyday lives. And we as a church are committed to helping you grow in that. We've, we've formed our groups and, and ministries to kind of help you grow in that, in that area. And so one of the things that we're doing, though, is we're going through Genesis as a church family over this next year uh, because understanding this book is going to help you better understand how to read the whole rest of the Bible. And today I want to spend some time revisiting uh, verse 1 and looking at a couple other verses right there in the beginning of chapter 1, because there's just so much there that lays the foundation for how we understand the God of Genesis. Uh, first, let's pray, uh, and then we'll go ahead and, and, and get into the text. Uh, Father, I thank you so much uh, for my brothers and sisters here and the opportunity that we have um, to be in your word. And as we said earlier, Lord, we, we recognize that you are a great God, that you are an inexhaustible God. You don't, you don't need our worship, but yet we have the privilege of being invited into knowing you, seeing you, savoring you, and worshiping you. And so I pray, Lord, that um, our time together and the songs that we sing and, and the words that we hear and the prayers that we pray uh, and the fellowship that we share, um, God, you know better than us what we need week in and week out. And you, you call us to worship, to fellowship, to set aside this time on your day. And so, Lord, would you just be good on your word uh, to feed our souls right now for our good and for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, people, people are always fighting to be number one right? People are always fighting to be number one, to be the best, to be the goats, the greatest of all time. Uh, the, the NBA playoffs are going on right now. We're in the conference semifinals, and everyone's wondering, you know, how's LeBron going to end his season? Is he the goat after all? He's broken all these records. Can he surpass Jordan in that way? Uh, uh, the answer is no, he's not. But... Uh, but you got to respect athletes like that who train tirelessly, and compete fiercely to break records and reign supreme. It's why we admire guys like MJ and, and Kobe, guys like Tom Brady and, and Roger Federer and Usain Bolt. 
Politicians have the same drive to be supreme in their area of expertise. They work to win elections. They pass legislation. They gain power within their parties. They, they go after repeat terms. Brands and businesses, they do this too. Each brand and business wants to be the supreme provider of the product in their market. And in Genesis 1, we're introduced to real supreme influence, to real supreme authority. And just the first few verses of the Bible, we meet a power that is unrivaled, one that has no beginning and no end. And while we might get these various pictures of greatness, some are good, some are not so good throughout human history, the picture that we get in Genesis 1 is that the one who has supreme power has purposes that are for our good. And we see that not only does he have all the power, but he uses his power for our good. (coughs) And so we're talking about one of God's attributes today. We're calling it the supremacy of God, the supremacy of God. When we talk about the supremacy of God, what we're talking about is how how God reigns supreme over all that is, over all that ever was, over all that ever will be. We're talking about the very godness of God. In Proverbs and Psalms and many other places, it says that true wisdom and understanding begins when you truly grasp this. The writers say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so let's walk through the first few verses of Genesis. And I want us to see the supremacy of God in its words. Uh, First, we see the supremacy of God, how it's revealed in his self-existence. That's point number one, the supremacy of God in his self-existence. Let's read verse one again. I know we looked at this last week, but I want you to look at it again. (laughs) It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, what we see here is that the first subject of the first sentence in the first verse of the first chapter of the first book of the written word of God is God. For the original Israelites who were reading this, that phrase, in the beginning, God, would leap off the page to say, it all starts with him. It starts with God. There's no beginning before God. In the beginning, there's God. He's the only self-existent one. In other words, he just is. In Revelation 1, it says, I am the Alpha and the omega, which means the beginning and the end, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I think the problem today for a lot of us is that we don't believe that God is God. I didn't say that you don't believe that there is a God. The problem is that we don't believe that God is truly God. We don't understand what it means for him to be truly God. Moses knew his original readers really needed to grasp this truth. Because if you don't start there, if you miss that, then everything else is out of whack. It's like building a house on a, on a sandy beach. Your foundation is shifty. And with enough pressure, the whole thing is just going to tumble over, tumble down. Now, when we say that God is self-existent, that means that he has no beginning or origin. He has no source. He doesn't come from anyone or anything. God was, 
even before was, was a thing. Now think about it. If God is the self-existent one, then he alone is the source and the sustainer and goal of the world. Do, do you see the significance of that? That this passage was written so that we would know that God is supreme over all things, not a political figure, not a monarch, not a wealthy investor, not a kingdom or nation, but God. He's got more power than LeBron, more riches than Elon, more excellencies than the newly crowned King Charles. He is completely unrivaled because he is the self-existent one. I mentioned last week how people try to ask this question like, okay, but then where, where did God come from, right? If you believe in God, where did God come from? But that question tries to locate God in a category that he himself created. You see the problem with that? Where did our God come from is a question that assumes space and location already exists. But who made space? Who made time? God did. In the beginning, God. God, by virtue of being God, has no beginning or origin. His very existence predates the universe. And so all that we know about him doesn't come from our philosophical musings or religious postulations. The question of God's nature is found in the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God. At the beginning, there is just God. That's it. And that's, that's wild. That's amazing. Because he's not, he's not a lowercase g God, he's uppercase g God, and that is important. That's huge. You see, the Egyptians at the time, they had their polytheism, and they had their God for this day, their God for that day, their God for this other day. The Mesopotamians, they had this God for this one category and another God for this other category. You remember the gods of Greek mythology? which were popular around first, the ancient Near East, like at the time uh, that, that Jesus and his followers would be reading this, Greek mythology and their Roman counterparts, they're hard to keep track of, right? Like you got Zeus and Aphrodite and Poseidon and Nike and Ares, and you got half-gods like Hercules. But in Exodus 3, God appears to Moses with a message for his people. And in Exodus 3, verse 13 and 14, it tells us about, uh, gives us a snapshot of their interaction. In verse 13, it says that Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites, which is your people, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? And God replied to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am, as, as if God stepped outside of time and space into time and space and said, no categories can contain me. No thought can categorize me. It's like God's name got stuck in the present tense. He wasn't saying I was. He wasn't saying I will be. He's saying, because I live outside of space and time, I just am. And why does this matter? Why does this matter for everyday people like us? <coughs> it means that if you want to know the true story of the world, 
you need to start here. You need to start with this guy. He's the one who was from the beginning. He's the one who has spoken and revealed himself to us. He's the one that has the key to what it means to live a life of meaning and purpose. It also means that wherever you go, God is already there. When you're suffering, he's already there. When you're grieving, God is there. There was never a time when God was not, and there will never be a place where God is not. God is. Point number two, we also see the supremacy of God in his self-sufficiency. So we just talked about his self-existence. Now let's talk about his self-sufficiency. Now what does this mean? Because they're kind of closely related, right? Self-sufficiency sort of flows from God's self-existence. When we say that God is self-sufficient, we're saying that he is not dependent on anyone or anything in the universe. Read the rest of the passage with me. Uh, Genesis 1, again, says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Here's what we see. We see that God did not need to create. He chose to create out of the sheer pleasure of his will. He wanted to do something that was good to him. We also see his self-sufficiency just in the fact that how his triune nature is laid out in these verses. You have God there in verse 1. Yeah, the Spirit of God in verse 2. They're creating through the word, let there be light. See, God never just makes things. He speaks things into being. He says this and he says that. He creates through the word. Creation is birthed in the mind of the Father, done and accomplished through the Son, and fulfilled and sustained by the Spirit who's hovering over the waters. I know this talk on the Trinity can be a bit of a, a mind bender, but I need you to know that this is so important to understand. This here is a uniquely Christian distinctive of how the world operates and how the world was made. That God was there before the creation of the world and that the God who made the world is a triune God. This is so essential to our faith. Within one Godhead, you have three persons, Father, Son, or Word, and Spirit. Still one God. God didn't become the Father, Son, and Spirit. He always has been Father, Son, and Spirit. We see Father, Son, and Spirit in the first few verses. This is different. The triune nature of God, believing in the Trinity. this is different than tritheism, which is three different gods, hanging out, making everything, or, or modalism, like God the Father is the creator and judge in the Old Testament, but then he kind of mellowed out when he had the kid and, and became the son. And then in Acts, when the church spreads, he puts on another mask and manifests himself as the spirit. That's not one God, three person. That's one God, three roles. What we see in Genesis 1 is a singular God 
existing in three distinct persons. God has always been triune. I want you to hang on to that thought and look at the words of Jesus in John 17. In John 17, verse 5, Jesus says, he's praying to God the Father, and he says, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory that I had with you before the world existed. That glory I had with you before the world existed. When did Jesus have glory before the world existed? We just read about it in Genesis 1. Genesis 1 and John 17, when you put them together, I mean, these are rad passages of Scripture. And here's what I want you to see in it. The Father, Son, and Spirit are exchanging glory for all eternity. From eternity past, they're exchanging glory with one another. The picture that we have is of each one always serving the other. Theologian Cornelius Plantinga, he, he uh, articulates it this way. He says, the persons within God, they exalt each other. They commune with each other and defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the others at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelopes or envelops and uh, encircles the others. God's interior life overflows with regard for others. C.S. Lewis calls this the dance of the Trinity. Because no person in the Trinity insists that the others revolves around them. There's a unity. They glorify one another. They serve one another. They center on one another. The Trinity spends eternity not selfishly desiring love from the other, but selflessly giving love to the other, glorifying each other. Now, why does this matter? Here's here's the beauty of it. This tells us that God is already relationally complete in and of himself. He is self-sufficient in the fullest sense of that term. Even relationally, he is self-sufficient. That means he does not need his creation in order to feel complete. He does not need to be worshiped in order to feel fulfilled. We worship him because he's worthy of it, not because he needs it. I think some of us, we assume God created because he got bored or lonely. But that's us projecting the way that we work and operate onto him. God's not like us. He's so other than us. He existed in eternal community, Father, Son, and Spirit. It's actually the best news for us that God does not need us. Because that tells us that his love for us is not a desperate love. It's not a codependent love. It's a delighting love. Now, having needs... Having needs is not always bad. Like you and I are are needy by nature because we're creatures. We were made. I need my kids to love me back to a certain degree. My youngest, he knows that. And so he says things like, fine, I don't love you. (laughs) Which I know he's playing when he says that, but this still hurts a little. Because we need love. We need relationship. God does not. He doesn't need it. 
It's hard to think of a self-sufficient love, but God has that. And it's actually because our God is three in one that we can truly say that God is love. God doesn't need us in order to love. As a matter of fact, his love towards us is just an overflowing of his natural character. He is the father who loves and gives and esteems the son in the fellowship of the spirit. He is the God who in and of himself is love. And as three self-giving persons, he can never be anything other than love. This means that God was love before creation, God is love. A, a unipersonal God cannot love others before creation because a unipersonal God cannot love unless he has something to love. And so then he's fundamentally about power. With the Trinity, you have unity and diversity and glorifying and service all before time. This rewrites the whole spectrum for us. Our triune God created the world by his will and for his good pleasure. Read verses 3 and 4 again in Genesis 1. It says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. What we see in these verses is that as a self-sufficient one, God has complete and total freedom. He would have been just as glorious if he never created at all. It would never take away any of his attributes or excellencies if he had never made anything at all. If he remained the sum total of reality, all the glories and excellencies would still be experienced within his triune nature. And look, that is good news to us. You know why? Because it tells us that he creates as an act of pure grace. Our existence is not because he needed us, but it was a gift to us. And that makes it all the more beautiful. You have some who feel God needed to create. That creating filled some hole he had or was lacking, but that is a lie. God doesn't need anything. If you really sit with the ideas of Genesis 1, it'll change how you carry on from here. It will alter the way that you sing and worship. It'll change the way you think about prayer. It'll change the way you, you search for and delight in the truths of God's word when you're, when you're reading it. It'll change the way you approach suffering and the trials of life. Our God is a self-sufficient one. Number three, the supremacy of God is revealed in his creative power. In his creative power. I won't belabor this one because we kind of went over it last week. But there's a couple new things that I think are, are, are worth mentioning. Uh, read verse 3 for me. It says that God said, let there be light, and there was light. So, so far in Genesis 1, we witness the unparalleled, unprecedented, and undisputed power of God to accomplish what is unknowable and unfathomable. To say that God is the creator and sustainer 
of everyone and everything is to name God as the singular, most powerful being that ever was, is, or will be. Now, this is a formula that the Bible wants you to get used to from the very start. The Bible wants you to get used to this formula that God did it. God created. God said, God brought it about, and there it was. And if you, can I, if you and I can grasp what the Bible says here, then we will come to see a God who can literally do anything. That's why I said earlier that our problem is that we don't believe that God is truly God. Because here's the central claim of Genesis 1, is that the universe is a purposeful product of a good and loving God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that this reality we inhabit is a product of a good and loving God? Remember, Genesis is a book about beginning. It's a book about origins, and origins are, are important. We want to know about them. Everything in life has an origin. You have a beginning. I have a beginning. Our church has a beginning. Our nation has a beginning. The sermon has a beginning. Some of you only care that the sermon has an end. We talked last week about how our minds, we wonder about beginnings. We want to know where something came from. The ancient Israelites, they had those same questions about the origins of time and space and matter and the world and, and the, the nature, this planet we call home. They wanted to know how did things come to be. And in the kindness of God, he reveals himself. He reveals himself in the written word. God answers their questions of how it all began by inspiring Moses through Moses' pen. And he tells them that it begins with him. What is it that God had to work with when he made all things? When God created the heavens and the earth? When he spoke light into being? Nothing. Nothing. God created in the manner of what scholars call ex nihilo, which is Latin for out of nothing. You might be wondering, well, hey, that's cool about God, but why does this matter for me? I don't think it really matters for me. Yes, it does. Because for one, it's the truth about who he is. You've heard me say before that if I started describing my wife in ways that are false, that would not be a good indication of the love that I have for her. I want to describe the woman I love dearly accurately. I want to say true things about her. And the God who we love has revealed himself, and so we want to describe him accurately. But the second reason that God's creative power matters to us in the everyday stuff of life is because when you need God to do something in your life, who is it? that you're praying to? Who is it that you're hoping in? Who is it that you're waiting for? What is it that you're praying about lately? What is it that has you anxious, that's keeping you up at night? Well, brothers and sisters, I want you to remember that you have a God who doesn't need anything to make things happen. He doesn't need anything to keep his promises to you. He just says the word and it's good as done. Our God is supreme 
in his creative and sustaining power. And lastly, we see the supremacy of God in his ordering power. In his ordering power. Read verse, go back and read verse two again. This is verse two and three, actually two through four, where it says that the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surf of the waters. Now, really quick here, the picture here is one of complete chaos. But then God starts to put things in order. The earth was formless and void, chaos, and then it begins to terraform for life. And then verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. What we see here is that God is orderly. He's not a God of chaos. He's a God of purpose, a God of order. He separates dark from the light, the day from the night. He steps into what he creates, and he just, he just tells the sun to burn somewhere between 10,000 and 27 million degrees. He says, fluctuate, just kind of stay within there, right? He forms the moon and tells it to chill 240,000 miles from Earth, and then it just Bins in the place. He says to planet Earth, I'm going to place you 94 million miles away from that sun, and I'm going to put you at an axis. And that axis is, you're going to be held in place at that axis by this thing called gravity. I just thought it up. You're going to love it, right? Gravity's going to hold you in place, and I'm, I'm going to tilt you at 23 degrees, which is just right, just enough to keep you from freezing over and just enough to keep you from burning up. And then he turns to the stars, and he says, I want you to burn billions and billions and billions of times to light up the night sky. And when all is said and done, what was once in chaos, what was once formless, and empty and void has order and fullness and life and beauty and glory. Look, that means when your life is in chaos and things seem out of order, out of control, and you can't figure out how to put things together, all God has to do is hover over you and things come under his order. And he has no audience, not even a single person to watch. In the sheer darkness, God stepped out and spoke and something came into being out of nothing. And then order came out of chaos. God did that. Not some ancient theory not some combustible singularity, not some big bang. No, God did it. He made it all, and he put the universe together. One more thing on this point. We see the Spirit of God hovering over the surface of, what does it say? Over the surface of the waters. You'll notice that wherever the creator moves, creation response. And in ancient mythologies, water is the most powerful force. And to an extent, we still believe that, right? When your kids are running by the pool, what do you tell them? What do you say? Stop, right? Stop running. Respect that water. 
Stop running. When they're standing in the ocean and playing around, what do you say? Don't go too far. Don't go too far. You don't want to get swept away. Respect the water. And the ancient Hebrews who first read these verses out loud, they understood this. That not only water, but all of nature and creation has enough good sense to respond to the creator. You remember when God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt? Moses is at the edge of the Red Sea. His people need to get across. God's people need to get across. And what does Moses do? He grabs his staff and in faith, he puts it at the, the edge of the water. And it splits. Even nature has enough sense to respond to the creator. Remember when Jesus showed up at the wedding in Cana in Galilee? It says they ran out of wine. And what does Jesus do? He turns water plain old water into wine. The head waiter comes over at the wedding. He tastes it, and he says, wait a minute. Usually, people serve the best stuff first and bring the lower quality later, like the two-buck chuck. They'll bring that later on when people can't tell the difference because they're too inebriated. But he says to Jesus, you did it backwards. You saved the best for last. Not only did he turn water into wine, but it was the best wine this waiter had ever had. Even water has enough sense to respond to its creator. Now, what do you think will happen in your life? When the word of God is preached over you, something happens. Will you have the good sense to respond to your creator? Will you respond to his word? I remember when I came to faith, I got saved at 19. All it took was one word from heaven, and then something happened. That's been unchangeable since. You're forever changed. Hope invades your heart. And maybe that's happened to you too. Now you're here with other Christians that you wouldn't otherwise know and you're singing songs of praise to God with them all because it takes one word from heaven. So let me ask you, how will you respond to the word of the creator today? Because he is self-existent, let us stand in awe of him and worship him. Because he is self-sufficient, let us call out to him, knowing that his riches and graces are abundant. Because he's the almighty creator, let us give him the glory that's due his name. Because he has the power to bring order out of chaos, let us trust him, rest in him, come to him, and find rest for our souls. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.